At this time, I'd like the ushers to come forward and hand out Bibles. Although I think for the, the fact that we learned how to say Zephaniah is good enough for today, right? I don't need to be up here preaching. What, are we, what am I doing up here? Then? <laughs> Finally, someone who's not going to talk for 25 minutes. But <laughs> Psych. Yes, I am. Anyways. <laughs> so here we are. It's good to see all of you again this morning. And I want to give a special welcome to those of you who are online, and we're going to dive in right away. We've been journeying through this series called When God Speaks. And through these various minor prophets, what I hope you've gotten out of their various messages is that when God says a message, we should be paying attention. And not just paying attention to some of the messages. You know, we're so tempted to kind of pick and choose what we listen to. And as I say that, a bunch of wives are nudging their husbands like, hey, pay attention. <laughs> and, but what we have to understand is that all of Scripture is God-breathed. And when God is communicating through these minor prophets, we have to understand that the message that they are communicating is something that, number one, lets us understand a little bit more about the God that we worship, and number two, has major implications for our lives today. Now, the prophet that we are going to be learning about, if I had to put together a New York Times bestseller list of books of the Bible, you wouldn't necessarily put the prophet Zephaniah in that list. You know, you would normally think of books like the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You would normally think of some of Paul's letters, uh, especially his one to the Romans. You would think of, you know, the historical books like Genesis and Exodus. Um, but you wouldn't normally put Zephaniah in that list. In fact, normally it's like when somebody says Zephaniah, you say, God bless you. <laughs> you know? But no, Ze Zephaniah is a minor, one of the minor prophets. But again, major implications for us and also an understanding of who God is. So at first glance, if you open your Bibles to Zephaniah, you'll notice two observations. The first being that Zephaniah was prophesying during the reign of King Josiah in 622 BC. So he's prophesying to the people of Judah. And this is going to be important to understand as we dive a little bit more into the historical context of the of the judgment and the message that's being passed on. Because if you were to glance over Zephaniah and read the three chapters really, really quickly, all you would see is judgment, 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 more judgment, all judgment. Let me give you an example. If we turn to chapter one, I'm gonna read this passage twice just to kind of give you an idea. And I want you to notice the difference between the two times that I read it. So Zephaniah chapter one, verse two, it says this. I will sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away both man and beast. I will sweep away the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea and the idols that cause the wicked to stumble. When I destroy all mankind on the face of the earth, declares the Lord, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all who live in Jerusalem. I will destroy every remnant of Baal worship in this place, the very names of the idolatrous priests. And it was at that point when all the congregation was like... This is going to be boring. What does this have to do with my life? What does this have to do with anything? Let me read this again in just a little bit different way. So Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 2. 
I will sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away both man and beast. I will sweep away the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea and the idols that cause the wicked to stumble. When I destroy all mankind on the face of the earth, declares the Lord, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all who live in Jerusalem. I will destroy every remnant of Baal worship in this place, the very names of the idolatrous priests. And all of a sudden, it's like, whoa, this just got real. This just got really real. And what we have to understand is that this judgment is coming from the fact that God is angry and he wants all of us to know that. Because if you were to just do a, a first glance at that, you wouldn't, you would just kind of skip over the fact that God's angry and God's casting judgment. And the interesting thing is that a lot of times we get this notion in our heads of an us versus them mentality. We as Christians are on the us side of things, and then on the other side is everybody else, the quote-unquote secular world. And so it can be easy to look at a passage like this and say, oh, God is casting judgment on them. And all of these punishments, all of this destruction, that's all on them. That's not on us. But if you dig a little bit deeper, this first judgment that I just read, it's actually a judgment on the people of Judah, a.k.a. us. So it's important to understand that while this book may seem small, it might seem insignificant, the fact of the matter is that it has major implications. And so, like, why is this judgment coming about? Well, if you would please turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 22. So, 2 Kings is a historical book. It kind of gives the history of Israel and Judah. And we are now at a point in Israel's history, it's a divided kingdom between Israel and Judah, and we're looking at the Judah side of things with a king named King Josiah. And before King Josiah was in power, there were two other kings before him. There was King Manasseh, everybody say Manasseh, and King Ammon, everybody say Ammon. And according to Scripture, it said that these two kings, Manasseh and Ammon, did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They brought in whatever foreign gods they knew about. They, they were all about bowing down to statues. They were all about doing what they wanted to do. And if at any point you worshiped the one true God, just like that, you were killed. It didn't matter how good of a person you were. It didn't matter how loyal you were to the kingdom. If King Manasseh or King Ammon even thought for a second that you weren't loyal to them, they killed you. They shed innocent blood. But then time passed, and finally King Josiah came into the picture. And King Josiah, according to Scripture, did what was good in the eyes of the Lord. He wanted to make some changes. He saw all of the pain and the suffering and the idolatry that was happening with the people of Judah. And he said, I want to I change this. So he decides to call on his temple priests to go to the temple and to basically do what's kind of considered like a spring cleaning project, if you will. They had to go and they had to kind of clean things up so that way they would get ready to do some sort of ceremony, some sort of celebration to recenter their hearts around God. So the priests are sent out, and the priests are digging through, you know, the old stuff, the old, you know, relics and various items of the temple, and they stumble across a copy of the book of the law. And what the book of the law was basically was the books of Genesis, Exodus, all the way through to Deuteronomy. And so the priests are like, whoa, 
we have stumbled upon pure gold here. We need to bring this back to King Josiah and let him know what we found. So they're running back. They're saying, King Josiah, King Josiah, King Josiah, look what we've found. We found the book of the law. And King Josiah's like, well, give it here. I want to read it. And as a result of King Josiah reading the book of the law, he became remorseful. He tore his clothes in grief because he knew that the people of Judah were way over here and God was way over here. There was a big, huge gap. There was a big split in allegiances. And so King Josiah was crucial in bringing those two sides together again. And so in order to figure out what action to take to get the people of Judah to turn back to God, he turns to a prophetess, a woman prophet named Huldah. And in 2 Kings chapter 22, verse 16, the prophetess Huldah says this to King Josiah. This is what the Lord says. I am going to bring disaster on this place and its people, according to everything written in the book the king of Judah has read. Because the people of Judah have forsaken me and burned incense to other gods and aroused my anger by all the idols their hands have made, my anger will burn against this place and will not be quenched. So in essence, what Zephaniah is speaking to is what's happening in 2 Kings. This whole idea of judgment coming because of the wrongs that the people of Judah have done. And we can kind of summarize these wrongs into two things. The first one being idolatry. And then stemming from that idolatry is a sense of pride. Or a sense of thinking that we know better than everybody else. Or thinking that our way is better. The best way. But let me first address idolatry and kind of give you an idea of what it means when we say idolatry. So the people of Judah, they were worshiping foreign gods. You know, there were gods like Baal, gods like Molech, gods like Ashereth, who were made into statues, or as I like to communicate to our kids, they were basically these, fo these foreign nations were worshiping chairs, if you will, if that helps with the imagery. And so because of that, they are putting the chairs, the statues, the foreign gods up here, and God is down here. Or for some of them, particularly the people of Judah, they know to worship God, but then they also sprinkle in a little foreign idol worship as well on the same playing field. Here's the problem, though. The God that we worship is a jealous God. He tells us in Exodus that you shall have no other gods before me, meaning that God wants to be up here and everything else needs to be sprinkled in this underneath space down here. And that's not what the people of Judah were doing. And it might be tempting for some of us here to read a passage like this and be like, I don't worship Baal. I don't even know what an Ashtoreth is. Moloch, he doesn't exist anymore. Therefore, I'm looking at this idolatry and I'm thinking to myself, I'm good. I don't, I don't practice idolatry. What's interesting is that modern idolatry kind of shows up in sneaky, unexpected ways. You know, we take a look at something like money. And money, while it is a good thing in and of itself, if you were to let that control your life and put it up here and have God be here, that's idolatry. 
Or it might look different for other people. It might be, you know, cabin culture, where you are putting cabin culture up here, the perfect weekend to spend time with family and friends over the, fa- over the time that you get to spend with fellow brothers and sisters in Christ learning about the Word of God here. Or maybe you've got God here, but on the same plane, you've got your family Or maybe you've got God here, but you're making sure that you get to church on time so that way you can watch the Minnesota Vikings lose again. (laughs) Or for me, you know, God's here and then I get to watch the New Orleans Saints lose again. But anyways, anyways, the point being is that while, you know, the New Orleans Saints, Minnesota Vikings, cabin culture, you put whatever in there. While that might be good, in and of itself. You know, I'm not condemning you, you know, watching Minnesota Vikings football. They're a fine team. It's okay. But where we get into trouble is if, you know, the Minnesota Vikings are up here and God's right here. Or if God's here and cabin culture is here. God's a jealous God. God wants all of our attention. God wants our hearts. That's what he is after. He doesn't want some of our attention. He wants all of our attention. And for the rest of it to kind of just be a part of glorifying him. But then we get to the matter of of pride. So we think we put our trust in other things. We think we know better by, and the people of Judah thought that they knew better by putting their trust in other things. But what we have to understand is that that pride that we think that we think we know better is going to get taken away. Let me tell you a little story. I was uh, a few months ago going to the grocery store, and you're thinking to yourself, like, wait, why is he telling us a story about going to the grocery store? That's that's a silly example, but bear with me for a second. So I was going to the grocery store, and it was a little bit different for me because normally I drive to the grocery store because, well, I'm lazy, and if you, to kind of give you a mental map of where I'm at, my apartment's here, Cub is like a block away, like not even, and yeah, I still drive. But anyways, this, this particular day I was like, well, I might as well walk. It's a nice day, I don't have to get much, so might as well, you know, take a nice little stroll. And as I was on this stroll, I felt like the man. I was looking at all of these cars that were on the road having to go to work while I got the free time to be able to go get groceries because food's one of my favorite things. And I was looking at how the cars were stopped at the stoplight. And I didn't have to stop because I was better than them So, because I, I get to walk on the sidewalk and keep going without other people you know, getting in my way. I was feeling good. I got to breathe in fresh air while other people were breathing in the must and the dirtiness of their cars that they drive. I felt really good about myself. This was a great idea, Kevin. You're the man, Kevin. So I go and I do my grocery shopping and I come out and I'm headed back to my apartment. And one detail that I forgot to mention is that between my apartment and Cub is a train track. So I'm walking back, and you can guess it, as I'm walking back, all of a sudden, off in the distance, I hear the dreaded sound of and then the barricade going down, ding, 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 ding. And all of a sudden, I went from feeling like the man to feeling like I'm the best to, 
oh man, now I'm absolutely humiliated because here I am standing beside Lexington Avenue, a very heavily traveled on road next to a bunch of cars stopped for the same reason that I'm stopped. And now all of a sudden I'm here like, I'm not so high and mighty now. In fact, I look over and there's two girls in a white suburban taking video of me being like, ah, ha, 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 dorky grocery boy, at it again. And I'm like, this is the first time I'm here. <laughs> but, I, but I'm just standing here like this. And this brings me to my point of like, it can be like God stepping in and being that train barricade and taking away the pride. This is what it was like for the people of Judah and the surrounding nations. Because if we dive into Zephaniah, chapter 1, verse 13, we read language like this. Their wealth will be plundered, their houses demolished. Though they build houses, they will not live in them. Though they plant vineyards, they will not drink the wine. So for, for me, I was putting trust in myself. And for the people of Judah, what they were putting their trust in is they were putting trust in the shelter that they built. They were putting trust in the food that they farmed and harvested. And God was looking at this and saying, oh, you think that putting your trust in those things is good enough? I'm going to come in and I'm going to take away your false securities, if you will. A little bit later, Zephaniah chapter 2, verse 8, we read this. And now he's speaking to the surrounding nations. Before he was speaking to the people of Judah about their false securities, now he's talking about the surrounding nations. He says, God, I have heard the insults of Moab and the taunts of the Ammonites who insulted my people and made threats against their land. And then skip down to verse 10. This is what they will get in return for their pride, for insulting and mocking the people of the Lord Almighty. Basically, God is saying, look, surrounding nations, I'm still judging you. I'm not just judging my people. I'm judging you all as well. And I'm going to take away your pride and your your thoughts of arrogance and, egocentri and egocentrism, I think, is the correct term. But then we skip a little bit later to chapter 2, verse 15, and now they're talking to the city of Babylon, and the ba Babylonians were a mighty people. And it says this, this is the city of revelry, Babylon, that lived in safety. She said to herself, I am the one, and there is none beside me. What a ruin she has become, a lair for wild beasts. All who pass by her scoff and shake their fists. Basically, what God was saying is that you Babylonians who are putting the, your trust in your nation, it would be like if people of America were putting their trust in America to provide for all their needs. The sense of nationalism. God's saying, no, I'm coming in to take that away too. God's saying, I'm coming in to take away all the pride. That is how I am going to judge. That is how I am going to destroy the people. And again, there is this tendency to look at Scripture through the lens of, this is about them. This isn't about me. But we, what we have to be reminded of is that we are a people with a split allegiance. You know, here we are. So on the one side, you know, we do good things as the church. Like, church, I see you doing good things. I see you reaching out and sharing the love of Christ to the community. I see you meditating on Scripture day in and day out. I see you attending church every Sunday, growing and maturing in your relationship with Christ. I see you doing that, and those are good things. But then on the other side, 
Uh, there is also the human nature tendency to think that you are the center of the universe, that, that you have, the re- have reason to be angry with a whole bunch of people. There is reason to think that you know better than everybody else. And all the while, you are in this uncomfortable split. Like, for me, this is uncomfortable. For some people, they can get all the way down to the ground, but for me, this is uncomfortable. And for the people of Judah, they were in this split, and as a result, it felt like they were never, ever, ever going to get out of the, out of the split. And the funny thing is that God, in chapter 2, verse 3, even, if, even when he provides the solution, he says this, perhaps you will be sheltered on the day of the Lord's anger, meaning that the people of Judah who are in the split, God's saying like, even if you turn to me, perhaps you will be saved. There's no guarantee that you are going to be saved based off of your actions, based off of what you do. And for us, that should sound like a scary thing. That should, that should worry you that what you do may not be good enough to get into the graces of God. So the question is, what do we do? Or for the people of Judah, the question is, well, what do we do? How do we respond? How do we get out of this hopelessness that we've gotten ourselves into? Well, the good news is that God loves us. God provides answers. God is always there to give us what we need. And in chapter 2, verse 3, God says this, Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, you who do what he commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. People, that right there, God is saying, come to me with humble hearts. Come to me and know that, when, that by making me greater and making you lesser, that's the key. Okay? And what God is trying to communicate is everybody, everybody take your thumbs and point them directly at yourself. And I, what I want you to say is I want you to say, it's not about me. One more time, it's not about me. Because heaven forbid it be about you. Man, oh man. And then what I want you to do is I want you to point to the people next to you. And now what I want you to tell each of them and say, tell them it's not about you either. If you want to, you can even say it's definitely not about you. Okay, so if it's not about us, then it's not, and if it's not about you, then who's it about? Don't stare at my pit sweat, stare at the, if it helps, stare at the cast iron Jesus. But it's about God. So it's not about me. Everybody repeat after me. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's about God. One more time. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's about God. I got you all being flight attendants, you know? Here we go. Exits are here, the aisle is down here. But if you, if you don't walk away with anything else, know and understand that when you humble yourself before God, you are basically telling God that it's not about me, it's not about anybody else, it's not, trying to, it's not about trying to impress other people, it's not about trying to gain the most stuff, it's about doing everything and having your life be overflowing with the power and the glory and the love of Christ, of God.
And what this humbleness should produce is when we're in this split, should produce a sense of hope. Where there was no hope, now there is hope. Zephaniah chapter 3 verse 12 says this, after God ha- is done judging the whole world and destruction has come, he says, but I will leave within you the meek and humble. The remnant of Israel will trust in the name of the Lord. This is what he's communicating to the people of Judah. He's saying, come before my presence, be meek and be humble. And that is what provides the hope where there was no hope. And in that hope, there's even better news is that that hope should then lead to joy and restoration. Because a little bit later in that chapter, Zephaniah 3, verse 15, it says, the Lord has taken away your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. The Lord, the King of Israel is with you. Never again will you fear any harm. So here is the message to the people of Judah. They're saying, put your hope in me. And next thing you know, the Lord, the King of Israel is going to live among you. And for us modern readers, we get the benefit of seeing that the result of God saying, the Lord, the King of Israel is with you, is that it was Jesus who came and lived among us and understood that we are a prideful and idolatrous people. And it was the same thing with the people of Judah. It was the same thing with all of the surrounding nations. And then a little bit later, like we read earlier in the worship service, Zephaniah 3.17 joyful occasion. The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. The end result is that there is going to be joy and restoration when we put our humble trust in him. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's about God. And if you kind of need a more practical example, let's turn back to 2 Kings. And if you remember, King Josiah was consulting the prophet Hold, prophetess Holda. And she's continuing on and recognizes King Josiah humbly coming before the Lord. And she says this, Because your heart was responsive and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard what I have spoken against this place and its people, that they would become a curse and be laid waste, And because you tore your robes and wept in my presence, I also have heard you, declares the Lord. Meaning that God isn't distant, meaning meaning we're not technically like slaves or servants that have to submit to the will of God who doesn't do anything. No, what, what it means is that we get to humble ourselves before a God who desires relationship with us. And this relationship is a joyous one. It shouldn't be an obligation. And as a result of King Josiah doing what he did, he was blessed. He was blessed in a weird way. You can find out in 2 Kings chapter 22, verse 20. But nevertheless, he was blessed. Okay? And as we close, I kind of want to give you one more illustration of kind of the whole process of, you know, this idea of humbleness to hope to joy and restoration. A few weeks ago, I was... uh, 
I was planning a big day for my girlfriend. Uh, we were going to go on a hike, and we were going to hike all the way to this beautiful waterfall in Hudson, Wisconsin. And uh, so I had been planning this day for months. I was so excited to share her this hike that I had done multiple times and to ha see her reaction when she saw this beautiful waterfall. And so in my mind, I was thinking to myself that I had this situation under control. I had been planning for months. I had been praying for this day. And, and I was like, yes, I have got this under control. The only problem is, is that when you plan something outside, you have to take into account weather. And I woke up the day that we were going on this hike, and it was a downpour outside. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, you've got to be kidding me. And, and as a result, I got angry with God. I was saying, God, I did all the right things. I prayed. I prepared. I was thoughtful and considerate of all of the different details, and yet all of a sudden I get repaid with a downpour outside. And nobody likes hiking in a downpour. Mission trip students will completely understand that. But I was like, okay, we're just going to go with this anyways. So my girlfriend shows up, and we're driving out to the park. And the entire time, she doesn't know this, but I'm just having this mental battle between, I mean, like, why is this happening? But yet God being who he is and knowing that there's going to be good coming out of the situation. And, and I'm just struggling. And, she, and I catch her looking at me a couple times thinking, like, what the heck is going on with him? We're going on a hike. Why is, she, why is he so mad? And so we're driving, we get to the park, it's still raining, and it was at that moment that I had to think, okay, I'm not in control, God is in control. God is the one who can calm the storm, so I better just pray. And so I prayed, I was like, dear God, please, 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 make this rain go away. And so we're looking at the, the weather radar, and we saw that it wasn't going to clear up until about 11. We were there around 9 or so, so we would have had to wait two hours. And so I look at my girlfriend, and, she's, and I was like, okay, uh, let's leave for a little bit, and then we'll come back when it clears up. And so we drive away, and as we're driving away, the rain stops. And I'm like, okay, the rain stopped. We better go on this hike. I don't care if it rains on us again. We're going back. And so I turn the car around. I do like a, what, like three, four-point turn or something like that? Something like that. And so I turn around. There's no rain. And so I hand my girlfriend the umbrella, and I was like, okay, we're going on this hike. So we're walking, and at one point, I'm like holding my hands out like this. And I'm praying like, God, please keep this rain away. This is so awesome that it's not raining right now. And my girlfriend's looking at me like, what in the world did I just get myself into? <laughs> She's looking at me so weird. But if I learned anything from Pastor Angie's message last week, it's that God loves annoying prayers. So I was praying annoyingly. <laughs> and so the beautiful thing is that understanding that God is in control and humbling myself before him there was the hope of not having it rain again. And in fact, we're walking, and all of a sudden the sun comes out a little bit more, and we get to the waterfall. And as a result, we get to this joyous occasion where we've got the waterfall, the sun is shining, and I look her in the eyes, and I get down on one knee, and I propose to her. Therefore, having some sort of joyous 
restorative moment, all because of the fact that of a humbling prayer towards God. It was incredible. Such a... You don't need to... My, and, and I don't tell you this story to tell you how humble I am. I just told you a story about how prideful I was. <laughs> but what I hope you take away from today is that we have a God who is powerful, who is mighty, who loves us very, very, very much and desires to be in relationship with us and offers us a way out through humbleness. And so each and every single one of you has the opportunity today to accept that invitation of humbleness and meekness to then experience hope, which then gives us this future of joy and restoration celebrating at the feet of the Lord. It's truly incredible, and I hope you believe that today. Let's pray. God, you work in some pretty quirky and mysterious ways. Sometimes we don't quite understand what you're doing, and sometimes we confess that we think we know better. We, sometimes, we confess that sometimes we put our trust in other things. But God, we, we thank you that you love us. We thank you that you chase after us, that you provide a way out, that you don't leave us suffering and hurting Lord, you understand our pain. You know our suffering. But God, we pray that today we would come towards you in humbleness, that we would know and believe that you are the one who provides hope and joy in the midst of a split that is going on in our hearts. Lord, we thank you for the message that you have spoken through Zephaniah, and we pray that we wouldn't just glance over this book, that we would allow the words that you spoke through him to a people thousands of years ago to impact ourselves at a heart level. And God, we know that it's not about us, it's not about other people, but it's about you. And it's about your awesome might. Everything revolves around you. Help us to live in that reality today. For it's in your most precious and holy name that we pray, Lord. Amen.